You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so uh, I think, you know, if, if we have read through, um, you know, any of the Gospels or if we've sort of um, read any part of Jesus's life, this life uh, that is accounted for us in the four Gospels in the New Testament, then we've probably either heard this story or a similar story where we see Jesus kind of having a, an interesting conversation um, with someone that maybe he, he should or should not be having that conversation with. And so um, I, I'm going to struggle, just so you know, um, this morning on a couple of levels. One, there's, there's a lot of things that are sort of underneath this um, that, that are helpful in terms of understanding it, but it's, it's also that along with uh, the fact that I just haven't preached in a while, and so there's a lot I want to say. Um, but uh, let's focus right in on verses 7 through 9, and I think this will give us some great clarity as to, again, what, what it is that's taking place here and why it's so significant for us today. So verse 7 says this, that a woman from Samaria came to draw water at a well where Jesus was. And he said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then we have John's commentary explaining for us why that's significant. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So here's what we're going to see, right? Again, I, I, I preface this with John chapter 1 where it tells us that Jesus is the Word in the flesh and that He is full of grace and truth. And so what we see here in this moment is Jesus extending grace and truth to the Samaritan woman. But there's, there's something uncommon about this grace and about this truth. Number one, right, He's um, at a well in a, in a particular part of, um, of the world that is hostile to him, right? So, so first and foremost, he's, he's engaging with people that, again, as John tells us, typically don't engage one another at all, right? And then beyond that, he's engaging with a woman, right? Which, whether we like it or not, the fact of the matter is that in history, um, there, was, uh, there was some very wrong views about, about their dignity, about their worth, Right? And so Jesus, in this moment, sheerly by addressing her, sheerly by acknowledging her existence, dignifies the person who is culturally undignified. He not only acknowledges her existence, he extends to her a hand of friendship. And then in verses 9 through 12, this is what happens. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So here's the thing. This situation becomes even more uncommon now in that not only has Jesus crossed a cultural barrier, not only has Jesus crossed a social barrier, 
right? But now he's dealing with what is really antagonism in this moment. You see, the, the, the Samaritan woman, although maybe not readily apparent for us as we just sort of fly over it, is actually being somewhat adversarial in this conversation. She's questioning Jesus. She's saying, sir, you don't have anything to draw water with. How are you going to give me water? Are you greater than, than my ancestors, my father Jacob, who has given us this well, who drank from it himself, a patriarch, an esteemed man of history? Are you, are you better than him? So the Samaritan woman is adversarial. She's un, unwilling to engage in Jesus' sort of uh, theological talk, and she's more concerned with the practical reality. She says, you can't draw me water. You don't have anything to draw it with. And even if you could, are you greater than my father Jacob? So Jesus, beyond friendship, right, and beyond just a sort of certain courtesy at this point, right, is going to walk in this fullness of not only grace, but also truth. Because here's the thing, I mean, I don't know about you, but typically when I encounter rude people, um, I don't generally have the patience to, to continue on in any kind of charitable conversation. I'm generally like, okay, that was great, I'm moving on, like this is, this is the rest of my day, I've got these things lined up, we'll just, we'll just move forward. And yet Jesus, although he's already extended great grace in, in merely engaging her, now in the face of her adversarial tone, in the face of her argument, in the face of her disrespect for him, instead extends grace and truth. Right? This is what he says next. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here's, here's what's taking place, essentially. You have, you have a person, you have a human being, right, who in the eyes of the culture is undignified. In fact, not only undignified in the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, but undignified in the relationship between her and her own people. Because what this story tells us is that she shows up at this well at, a, at about noon, which um, if you've ever had to go do like hard manual labor, uh, like carrying buckets of water to and from your home, you typically don't pick noon o'clock to do it. So she's going purposefully at a time when no one will be there because she thinks that she can walk in her shame without being bothered. So not only is she sort of undeserving, un unwarranting of grace or kindness or charity in the eyes of her own culture, in the eyes of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, but also in her, in her adversarial nature, in her unkindness towards Jesus, Jesus, in this moment, completely unmerited by her actions, gives her grace. He continues to extend the hand of friendship. He continues to preach the truth to her. He continues to invite her to taste of the living water, this water that will spring up into a well of eternal life to those whom it is given. He continues to extend it to her, even though she is utterly undeserving in every sense of the word. 
He extends her grace, unmerited favor. That's the definition of grace, unmerited favor, a favor that is not earned, a favor that they have not deserved. And then in verses 16 through 18, he extends truth to her, right? So in verse 16, it says that Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Right? So, so Jesus in this moment, right? Uh, uh, the Samaritan woman uh, essentially is asked a question by Jesus. Go and call your husband. And she sort of gives, you know, she gives the truth in measure, right? And that she says, I, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus in this moment shows, shows his, his sovereignty, his omniscience, right, his knowledge. And he says, yeah, you're right in saying that. Here's the fact. Here's the reality of your life. This is the reality of your situation. This is why you are showing up here at noon as opposed to either in the morning or in the night when it is customary for your people to come here. Jesus extends grace and he extends truth to this woman the Samaritan. But here's what we see. If we read verse 15, we begin to realize that the Samaritan woman is concerned with earthly water for survival, while Jesus is offering a living water for eternal life, right? Verse 15 says this, after Jesus offers, right, this water that if she were to drink, she would never be thirsty again, the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Right? So there's, there's something here that she thinks she needs, right? She says, look, you could alleviate a lot of my pain. You could alleviate a lot of my struggle. You could alleviate a lot of my difficulty if you were to allow me to taste of this water so that I might never have to come back here to draw water again. Right, so what, what the Samaritan woman thinks she needs is, is earthly water, right? What she thinks she needs is sort of this, this unrelenting supply, right, of earthly water that will essentially deliver her from having to work for it. Now, I think there's uh, a lot of ways in which we are just like her in that I don't think I'd be making a big leap this morning in saying that all of us in this room, whether we are Christian or not, can name earthly things that we believe we need for life and for vitality. That there's things that we think that we need. And yet Jesus in this moment tells her what she really needs. Right? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. Again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, the Samaritan woman sort of places her fingers on an external need that she believes is the source of her thirst. And yet Jesus is saying, that thirst is really a symptom of something that you cannot provide for yourself. But there is a place that it can be provided for you. You see, the Samaritan woman is actually thirsty for what only Jesus can provide. 
She longs for the approval of her people. She longs to not walk in shame anymore. That's why she doesn't want to come back to the well. She doesn't want to have to be forced into that public spectrum, that public place where her life is on display with all of its crudeness, with all of its undesirableness. And yet what Jesus is inviting her to understand is that everything that we think we need on earth can really only be satisfied by Jesus. Do we, like the Samaritan woman, desire approval? Well, then we can know that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That same truth is spoken over followers of Jesus. Do we think we need power? Well, Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and life. I have power over both death and life. Do we want control? Jesus says that not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from him. Do we want comfort? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So why are, why are grace and truth important, not only in this situation, but in our day-to-day life? Well, what the Samaritan woman needs in this moment and what we need in every moment is truth. We need to be told what we really need rather than trying to paper over what we need with temporal solutions to eternal problems. We need the truth. That's what the Samaritan woman needs in this moment. And yet here's why grace is important. We need to be given grace, that is, unmerited favor, when we stubbornly refuse the truth, right? Because the the fact of the matter is that that's just going to happen, right? All of us at some point have either read a part of the Bible or come to terms with a part of maybe what Jesus said or who he is or, or what he claims to have done, and we've said, man, I just don't know if I believe that. And yet Jesus, rather than walking away from us at our moment of unbelief, instead, just like to the Samaritan woman, extends grace and says, no, come, believe. How often do we see this, right, in Jesus' life, even just with the disciples, right, where so many times Jesus speaks to them very clearly about what he's come to do, about what he will accomplish, and about how he will accomplish it, and they just don't get it. And it says that he takes them aside and he explains it again. Maybe the most clearly that we see it is in the life of Peter, right? Who follows Jesus for three years. He's not just a follower of Jesus, but he's sort of part of this little inner inner circle of about two or three that, that, that Jesus is sort of really heavily invested in, right? Peter, James, and John. He explains the truth over and over for those three years. And yet, when Jesus is crucified and laid to rest when he is questioned whether or not he knows Jesus. He denies that he ever knew him. And not only does he do it once, not only does he do it twice, but he does it three times. And yet when Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he appears to his disciples and he appears to Peter, does he cast him out of his presence or does he instead say, Peter, 
It's upon this rock. It's upon this confession that I will build my church. You are an apostle of God. You are sent with power from the Spirit on high to make my name known, right? Unmerited favor. Peter did not earn Jesus' favor. In fact, he had earned nothing but his wrath. And yet Jesus extends grace in that moment. So, how do we then respond to Jesus' grace and his truth? Well, verses 23 through 25 say this. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. So what do, what, what do extending grace and truth have to do with worshiping in spirit and truth, right? It may feel kind of like right now we just, we just kind of hit the e-brake and we're going a whole different direction. And yet I would, I would contend to you that we're not. Because here's the thing. When it comes to these difficult situations uh, around what we believe to be true, particularly what the, the Bible says is true, right? That's, that's why we say um, every Sunday when we gather, right, that we're all about Jesus, and to that end we go to the Scriptures because we believe that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed in all the Scriptures. We believe that it, they're true, that they're sufficient, that they're infallible, that, that they're inerrant, So if we only give grace, right? If we were, so, so we see Jesus here with the Samaritan woman holding the tension between grace and truth, extending both in equal measure to the Samaritan woman, not being afraid of telling her where she's gone wrong, but also not being afraid uh, or unwilling to extend great kindness, great grace, great patience, even in the face of an adversarial conversation. But if we only give grace, then we then we can't worship in truth. If we only give grace, we can't worship in truth. If we consistently give ground away on the truth in order to be perceived as gracious, we'll end up worshiping a little g-god of our own fabrication, which is really just ourselves and our choices, rather than the big g-god who's revealed himself in his word. But here's the Here's the converse of that, right? There's, there's real and distinct problems if we only ever extend grace, grace apart from the truth. But there's also real and distinct problems. If we crush people with the truth, we can't worship in spirit because instead of worshiping in the spirit, we're worshiping in the law, in legalism, in religion. Or... We're so ashamed that we can't worship because we perceive our sin to be bigger than the grace afforded to us in Jesus. So do you see that? If we're, if we're heavily weighted on either side of this, it precludes us from being able to worship God as he would be worshipped. Right? It, Jesus tells us that true worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
And so we have to contend for the truth while holding on to the Spirit, which is a Spirit that has been renewed by the Gospel, which is a Spirit that has been regenerated not by our ability to maintain a moral standard or our ability to maintain appearances, but by our ability to rest in the finished work of Jesus Himself. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? That means that when we worship in truth, we worship according to how Jesus would have himself to be worshipped. We worshipped him as the Messiah that he proclaims himself to be. We worship him in everything that he is proclaimed to be true. We see his standard and we see it as worthy, valuable, and fact, reality that we walk in. And to worship in spirit means we worship according to the inward transformation that has been afforded to us by the Spirit as opposed to the outward transformation that we try to gain by our works. So here's, this is why, honestly, <laughs> this is why we, we get up here and, and, and Joe will, will tell you to, to clap your hands. Or maybe at some point he'll say, you know what, this is a really appropriate time for us to, to raise a hand in worship to God. I think some of us may, may confuse that with like an outward piety, you know, like, oh, if you do that, you're sort of more holy than the next person. And yet what Joe is inviting us to do in that moment is to worship both in spirit and in truth. In truth, because the Bible tells us that when we worship God, we should raise our hands that we should clap our hands, that we should make a joyful noise to the Lord, that we should engage with one another, that we should sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. But also in spirit, in that we are liberated from all the trappings that says, well, if I do that, I'm, I'm going to look like not, not as cool as I would like to look. But the thing is, if you've, if you've been regenerated by the Spirit, then those, that, that stuff doesn't matter. Because what you want is for God to look at you and say, that is good. Not others to look at you and say, that's good. So we're being invited on Sunday mornings to worship in spirit and in truth. In truth according to his word, in spirit according to what he's done in us that frees us from all the trappings and burdens of this earthly life. But I think the most important question is, is, is why we worship, right? And verse 26, Jesus is going to give us that reason, right? The woman says that she knows of this Messiah, of this Christ, who when he comes will tell us all things. And Jesus in that moment responds confidently, assuredly, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, now the question then becomes, what has this Christ, what has this Messiah accomplished, right? Jesus offers this Samaritan woman, this undeserving woman, sweet, living, eternal water instead of bitter, bitter temporal, and earthly water. What gives him the right to make that offer? Well, if we look at the conclusion of John um, in, in verse 19, and you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you're certainly welcome to. But in John 19, um, we see Jesus 
uh, on the cross. And this is, this is what takes place right before his death. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Why is this significant? What does this have to do with his offering the eternal living water to the Samaritan woman? Well, see, in, in this moment, Jesus experiences not just a physical thirst, but the cosmic thirst of God's rejection and the bitter cup of his wrath towards sin. And he does so in order that we can taste the sweetness of eternal living water. And in that moment, he drank the fullness of this bitter cup, so that his final words, it is finished, were final indeed. All our sin, all our death, all our untruth, all our ungraciousness are placed upon Jesus and then exchanged for us with his sinlessness, his life, his truth, and his grace. You see, Jesus is indeed full of truth, He says he's the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. But he's also full of grace when he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So in conclusion, we as Christians are bound to the truth because they reveal Jesus. Jesus is the truth. We have to be bound to him if we want to be followers of him but we are also bound to the grace that that truth reveals. So what should we do, right? I think there's a couple of things that that we should do, just practically speaking, in light light of this um, text and in light of what Jesus has done. I think first we examine ourselves, right? Many of us this morning are like the Samaritan woman where we have a thirst that we are desperately trying to quench with something in this world that Jesus has already offered the satisfying drink of living water for. What is it that is true that we don't want to acknowledge is true? One thing for me is that I I still seem to believe that other people's opinions of me are more important than God's. And yet the truth is, the truth is that if God is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, and if the Spirit has done what he says he has done in my heart, then I am already fully and eternally approved of in the eyes of the only person whose opinion matters. That's a truth I need to believe today. That's a truth I need to acknowledge. And then maybe ask yourself, what are the areas that I need grace in in order to be one to the truth? Where do I need the Lord to walk with me patiently, long-sufferingly, kindly? Where do I need to let the Lord patiently, lovingly invite me? Marshall, you're already approved of. And then I think we do two more things. One, we extend real grace, right? We as Christians, 
we extend blood-bought, truth-laden, Jesus-saturated, uncompromising grace, both in the church towards one another as the family of God into which we have been accepted by Jesus, but also to those outside the church as a community where people can belong before they have to believe or behave. And then finally, we extend real truth. You see, what we we see here is that what we say is only slightly more important than how we say it. Because what does 1 Corinthians tell us? That if we speak in the tongues of men and angels, but we have not love, we are a clanging symbol. That no matter how prophetic, that no matter how true we speak, that if, if it is not accompanied by the grace in the character of Jesus that has been extended to us, then it's utterly unhelpful. That it's as if I were to take that symbol right there and just walk behind you, clanging it all day. That that's the reality of those Christians who operate only in truth, unaccompanied by any grace. But so let's be reminded that both of those are necessary for a faithful witness. That if we want people to experience the living water that is found in Jesus, then that means that it that we're leading them to a place where they can worship both in spirit and in truth, and they can't worship in truth without the truth and only grace. But they also can't worship in spirit if we're only giving truth apart from grace because they're not being invited in to a place that is full of gospel and safety and time to work through and navigate what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to work through and navigate what it is that really Jesus has done on all of our behalves in and through his work on the cross. So my my hope and my prayer this morning is that as sojourners, that this would be our posture. That we would be willing to examine ourselves and see the untruths that we believe and bring them to the truth of the Bible to be reconciled. And that from that empathy and that from that, from that journey and from that difficulty that we would then look to others and extend not only the truth but also grace and that we would walk with them in the same patience and in the same kindness that we would ask of God and of one another. And I believe that as we do that, that this is what will happen. Because the conclusion of the story is not Uh, is not quite done yet. Because what what we didn't have time to delve into and see is is sort of this this woman's gradual opening to to Jesus and who he was. But essentially, this is what happens. In verse 28, it says this, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. That, that meaning the people that she had gone to talk to. And then verse 39, skip down to that, and it says this. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, 
They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, because Jesus was willing to extend not only the truth, but the truth over time with great grace, this Samaritan woman came to a saving understanding of his person and his work and then extended that in the same way to all these other Samaritans, all these other people who were essentially outcasts um, according to Jewish heritage. And it tells us that many came to believe because of the woman's testimony. And my guess is, my guess is, because she was willing to tell the truth, but also to see it extended in grace because the same was done for her. So let's pray. Father God, we love you. Uh, We thank you for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Uh, Pray, Father, um, that as we gather, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, that where we need to be realigned uh, with the truth, that we would be humble and, and willing to have that done to us, for us, through us. And Father, where we are um, shackled, Lord, by something other than the Spirit, um, Father, that you would release us from that, Lord, that we would lift hands, that we would sing loudly, that we would proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done, knowing, Lord, that that is a, a, a satisfying aroma to you and to the world around us. So, Lord, we love you. We're grateful for all that you have done on our behalf. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.